The title of this morning's talk is The Internet. And notice it's not the internet, the internet. Which a term I've coined, never heard anybody use it before, but who knows. I coined as an alliteration of internet, of course. And in doing so, I'm drawing a parallel between our interpersonal communications illustrated by the internet and communications with ourselves, exploration of ourselves, introspection, if you wish, which by definition is mediated by the internet. That's how I define internet. The interpersonal and the interpersonal differ, of course, in the territory they cover. Outer in one case, inner in the other case. But this is not the point I wish to emphasize in comparing the two. On the contrary, my main point is that at this stage of history, of culture, whatever, human history, if you wish, we have encumbered the interpersonal with much that is artificial and spurious. While our internet remains largely unexplored and contaminated, therefore, I mean, we do, of course, explore it with a, an occasional sitting. We explore it. We explore it in therapy sessions, of course. Mm -hmm. But the bulk of our communications are limited to the outside. As a result of this very lack of familiarity, our internet remains an invaluable and contaminated resource. You could call it a beginner's net, using terminology of yesterday's talk. So this is going to be my central point. And let me clarify by starting to review some aspects of our interpersonal communications, our interpersonal world of irreality, if you wish, as typified by the internet. The development of the computer and the World Wide Web have opened, as you all know too well, a way of communicating, the so-called virtual way, which has come to mediate the bulk of our interpersonal communications. 
by email, chatting, text messages, and, and many other things that I haven't found out about, but my, <laughs> my grandchildren know very well, I'm sure. Every day something comes up. T take emailing. Obviously, somebody was mentioning to me yesterday, it's, it's much easier than sending a letter, having to search for an envelope, <laughs> getting a stamp and all that. Making sure that the value of the stamp is the current one because it can change. <laughs> but, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is that email manners prescribe, prescribe that we remain informal and disengaged. True feelings are not invited. So it feels easy and safe. A friend of mine whose teenage daughter was loath to communicate, to communicate with him over the phone, in the very early days of the internet, discovered that they, communicate, they could communicate beautifully through email. Made it so much easier. Of course, it didn't mean that, that the difficulties had been solved, and on the contrary, <laughs> they had been pushed aside. The emailing allowed that to happen. They could turn a blind eye to them, ignore them in a way that the telephone, the voice, the tone of voice doesn't let you do it. I was fascinated by an article in the Shambhala's son, uh, you know, spiritual publication, if you wish. September, this last September issue, there's a story about a workers at Google's headquarters in uh, Silicon Valley in California who have taken up with great enthusiasm meditation. You know, they, they go in for the new thing in, in those environments, of course. And, and the teacher happens to be Mirabai Bush, a person closely connected to IMS. And um, there's a quote from her here. It says, the article says that she tells a story about teaching mindful emailing, in which participants are taught to take three breaths after typing, typing an email, look again, imagine how the other person will receive it, visualize both a mental and emotional response, and then alter it if need be. And this is what uh, Mirabai Bush has said about this group she's leading. One person came back next week and he was amazed at how much difference it made when he was reflective about email. He said, I wrote this whole email out and I knew it was really important for the person to receive it with an openness 
to my ideas. But the message, he says, was emotionally loaded, so he might not respond very openly. I looked at it careful, at the message, he says, carefully, and reflected. And then I did something very radical. I called him up on the phone. <laughs> Others in the class nearly gasped. <laughs> and then he said, you know, it really worked. <laughs> so that's a call. Call the territory that we are talking about. Of course, it's not that all our internet communications are nice and proper. In fact, they can get outright rude, particularly in the blogosphere, if you've ever gone there, where some bloggers cultivate spewing vulgarities. And yet, such behavior has nothing to do with spontaneity or freedom, and everything to do with what's expected in such circles. Much as the Internet has a knack for stereotyping the interpersonal, the mass media has been doing so for a long time. Just, just one example. I just glimpses at a news show, a TV news show recently, and they were describing a bong bombing in Afghanistan. <coughs> How did they depict it? Depict it as an animated version. They didn't want to put the actual photographs, the film, videos on the screen and expose us to the horrors of the war we are conducting. So they sanitized it. And, and of course, sanitation is what I was talking about, too, about the internet. We, we create this virtuality in a myriad of ways. Consider, for instance, another way, automation. I don't know whether you've ever seen or come across a pianola. Well, this must be a very old gadget, because uh, I was a, a child in Argentina once. And I went to this uh, party, and there was a piano playing. But it was the dullest piano music I've ever heard. So we went to the piano to see who was playing it. And of course, nobody was playing. That was, that's what pianolas, that's the name given to these very old-fashioned automated pianos. There was a roll with the music encoded in it. You could see the roll on top of the keyboard, and somehow the, that translated into keyboards being tapped, and key, sorry, keys in the keyboard being tapped. 
obviously, this is a very primitive, but a very tangible example. Um, but today's automation has got so sophisticated that we don't even know about it. And it's not just about piano music or about music. Take the phoning machines, for instance. More and more, I get called up by these phoning machines, talking machines. And since I'm kind of a rebel, I always ask, are you a person? <laughs> now, the funny thing is, once in a while, a voice mumbles something back. <laughs> so it turned out to be a, a, a live person, but live is not the <laughs> correct expression. <laughs> have to take that live with a grain of salt. Because human telemarketers end up inhabiting an automated world as well. My apologies if any of you is in that profession, you know. What can we do? And, and all this even transpires to ordinary communications, not just with telemarketers. Increasingly, in our social interactions, we, we tend to, we are trained to follow a prescribed model of what to say and how to say it. A model that has very little to do with wisdom and everything to do with feeling safe, with not feeling vulnerable. I understand that feeling, of course. Uh, fair enough. But we've been put in that position through our social training, you know. We could learn to feel safe regardless. Even in silence. Riding, say, the New York subway or whatever. We also play it safe. We don't look at people in their eyes. Least there may be some nonverbal communication may transpire by mistake or poor control or whatever it is. And we have left ourselves unprepared. And even with, in talking, we, we really try to strip our words of liveliness. Not everybody, not in all circumstances, but that's one of the ways we are trained to behave. And if we are going to allow any intensity in our words, in that model of behavior, then it, let it be aggressiveness. Because nothing covers up our intimate feelings more completely than aggressiveness. I mean, we think it covers them up anyway. And 
And you may ask, throughout this presentation, when I talk about control of the interpersonal, whose control am I talking about? Largely, if not exclusively, I'm talking about control by the I, the ego, the me. Of course, the I is not representative of the whole person at all. My I is not representative of me. It simply impersonates me. But it tends to take over as, it, as if it were the whole of me. It's nothing but an impersonator passing itself as me running roughshod over the rest of me, over my internet, and at times over those around me as well. Careful not to look at Raquel here. <laughs> in some, the virtual world in which control is a watchword, is a favorite playground of the eye. But for the rest of us, the habitual casualty of this control, the virtual world, is really bad news. So, it's time now that we look into the rest of us. How do we connect to the rest of us? How do we connect to our internet? How do we gain access to the rich workings of our body-mind? How do we bring back into life that part of us that is largely uncontaminated, largely free from the stereotype downloads, from the automation, from the rule of the eye, and from the demands of convention. How do we get there? How do we get out of the superhighways of communication where there's nothing, nothing nature and spontaneous, and venture into the rural roads that go into the wilderness? To go back to the automated piano, pianola analogy, how do we dispose of the music roll? And start playing by tapping on the keyboard afresh with a beginner's mind. Of course, we first have to become familiar with the instrument, and we have to practice playing the piano. Same with our internet. 
we first have to familiarize ourselves with what's involved in focusing the mind in concentrating the mind and then practice playing which is very much what we do when we can't like this with the piano whether we are improvising or bringing a score back to life what emerges emerges fresh from the player and from the instrument there's a collaboration there, very important. And so the player and the instrument become one. Different parts of the instrument become one. You know, piano, I somebody reminded me. I'm sure others here know much better than I, but anyway. It has its uh, strings. That's uh, directly hit it, hit by the, our actions on the keyboard, and also there's the frame of a piano, with all its resonances. Without the resonances, the sound of the strings would be puny. Likewise, with the workings of the mind, thoughts are not worth much, are not even worth a penny, as expression goes, without the reverberations they elicit in our internet. And then, very importantly, there are the, the silences the pauses, both in music and in thought, without which neither music nor thought could ever become alive. The equivalent of the strings in the piano are the words letters and words in a verbal communication. And words have their incredible echo chamber too. One echo chamber of the words derives from the fact that words have a multiplicity of connotations. So there's a primary meaning, but then the connotations reverberate in our mind and, and make connections for those words. Other words, our text would be puny, would say nothing. And of course, I haven't said anything about the tone of voice and the gestures and my hands going like this and like that, whatever. It's part of the echo chamber, too. And 
not just to communicate with others, as I hear my tone of voice, as I feel my hands moving, there's an echo in my inner, inner net. And, and very much the same happens with all our sensations, bodily sensations, for instance. They too are surrounded by echoes. And you, you can perhaps notice that as you're doing the practice. And say you focus on the breath and, yes, primary attention to the nostrils, for instance, or to whatever. Um, but there is a, the resonance of the other, all other parts of the body and mind that are touched by that breath that comes in and out. Still, initially, your primary attention goes to, the, say, the nostrils. But that's uh, kept alive by all the other echoes. So, acts as the internet through all those sensations. And we access the essential emptiness of the internet. Because the internet is a, just like a piano frame. Is that ready to receive? So is our internet. So maybe I've brought to life what I mean by this internet. And contrasted it with the outer communications that are less <laughs> and much more contaminated by habit. Now, how about interconnections? Can we interconnect through our internets? Of course we can. As we learn and practice connecting to our own internet, we discover that it can also function as a gate to connect with other internets, with the depth of others. And, and, and this hall is an example of that. In the midst of silence, we are touched by each other's presence in, in mysterious ways. I'm not suggesting any, any special force or element, whatever. Just reconnect, that's all. And of course, very clearly in the sharing, which comes from deep down and not from conventional expectations. And not just in the talking, when somebody shares something, but very, very importantly in the silent periods that follow each sharing, with the reverberations, as I often say, the echoes of what has been said resonate in all of us.
the key is finding ways let me not say this lightly because sometimes this is very difficult I'm not glossing over it but again dropping the default setting of defensive that defensiveness that haunts our lives not easy But unless we get out of there, we are in a cage. We need to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. In, in reasonable ways, of course. In reasonable ways. Uh, we have to look at the world that surrounds us. And we look, have to look at uh, the capacity of our own internet to cope with what comes in. Fair enough, of course. This is a uncharted territory. We have to tread lightly there. But eventually, if we're really going to get somewhere, if we're really going to interconnect our internets, we need to drop our guard. The same can be said, of course, of course, about falling in love, very clearly. When the interconnection between two, between two internets becomes most intense. However, I footnote here, falling in love is a special case. It ordinarily involves just two people and dramatically excludes all others. And furthermore, the interconnection of romance is much too often snatched by the ego, contaminated by a sense of ownership. But need not be. I'm, I'm not. This is not an argument against couples loving each other. Quite the contrary. But as I say, it's a special case. It is said that love is blind, right? We've heard that many times. I have, anyway. And and I. I'd agree that it has blind spots. Oh, yes, it has blind spots. But let me tell you very emphatically what is unquestionably stone blind is lovelessness, is an inability to love or fear of loving. Stubbornness, with a stubborn unawareness that we are surrounded by internets that are open to love and be loved. And, and mind you, not only human internets are that. Count cats and dogs and 
whatever, horses, whatever. Even a little spider on the wall. Whenever internets manage to connect, they piece together a net of nets. This brings to my mind a powerful metaphor that I've shared before with you, which is uh, one that comes from the Tibetan tradition, Buddhist tradition, which is named Indra's net. Briefly, in this net, named after the goddess Indra, each intersection at each intersection of the threads, there's a precious stone. And the magic of the net is that the precious stones, according to the tradition, are placed in such a way that each stone reflects all others in the net. So we echo with each other. So the radiance of each stone is enhanced by the radiance of the others. Much as without, as when, sorry, much as when our internets are connected in such a way that they cause each other to reverberate with the other, enhancing the other's vibrations. This doesn't happen very often, but there are little isolated episodes of that. As there are isolated episodes of people falling in love, saying that a little sarcastically, but anyway. <laughs> um, for instance, what comes to mind to me was a, a 1969 Woodstock Music Festival, not far from here which I wasn't there, but uh, I had just arrived in this country anyway. And, um, but apparently it, a lot of internetting, inter internetting went on. <laughs> in fact, major political upheavals tend to create conditions under which internets of individuals interdigitate in solidarity. Is there any chance that we might, might we collectively, humans, and a few pets too, might develop a lasting and unbound net of Indra in our own real world, actually pulsating. Not just isolated instances, but, but really widely. Perhaps that's the best I could say. 
When I think of worlds to come, I think of the world in which our four-month-old great-granddaughter, Zeni, spelled Z-E-N-I, her parents call her Zeni, with the Argentinian pronunciation, or Latin American pronunciation. Anyway, I think of, of her world when I think of world to come. The trademark of Zeni's world is bound to be danger, if not catastrophe. That, I think, needs to be quite clear. Look at what's happening ecologically. And global warming, it's, it's, it's there, it's coming. And we're still playing games, you know, like uh, re rearranging the furniture in the Titanic, right? Before it hit the iceberg. Be no icebergs in that coming world. <laughs> Financially, forget it. Financially, it's an absolutely crazy world. It cannot survive. It's all false values, invented values, created values. I've been in a country, Argentina, where the whole value of the peso went down. Totally. I mean, it's just, it feels horrendous, but it was just a little country, you know. But if it happens world, worldwide, forget it. And of course, then there's uh, the propensity for making war. The idea that we can bomb away the world to solve all its problems. And this, in an atomic age, is, there isn't much hope. And then our country the most powerful in the world, has just elected a reasonable president. But the path continues business as usual. It doesn't bode well for Zeni's world. Rather, it invites an apocalyptic view of her world. And yet, there is the other side of the coin. Whenever there's a crisis that's said to be opportunities as well. So, I've highlighted, highlighted the dangers. Where are the opportunities? I believe, I truly believe, they can come up from opening up our internets. 
the part of us that's uncontaminated by greed and hate. I mean, that's there. Everybody, even the most obnoxious person that we know, they have this side too. Only they don't show it. That part of everybody that's beyond the rule of I, me, mine. Not by just opening up to his, her internet, sorry, internet, but there's a possibility of letting the, our internets all hang out together. As I said, configurating a net of Indra. Contaminating, sorry, connecting with the depth of our uncontaminating collective mind. Uncontaminated because it would be made up of our conjoined internets in which peace and love still prevail. The whole Buddhist tradition has a whole story about how pure we are, our pure mind is, <coughs> basically, inside. I, I come to the same conclusion. By, by checking out how, how I can find deeply pure parts of myself. And there's all the other contamination, too, of course. In the world of today, this sounds like an utopian fantasy, right? Yeah, it is. Most of our fellow humans still keep their internets under lock and key. I must say I do too, under most circumstances. I haven't learned to open it up. But in Zeni's world, or perhaps in the world of her great-grandchildren, things might be different. When hitting rock bottom in the midst of a global catastrophe, we humans might come to see that we need to shift radically our ways of being and relating. The shift may not be universal at first. But once the net of truly connected internets reaches a critical mass, here comes my training as a chemist for things. Which <laughs> critical mass. Once it reaches a critical mass, the process would be unstoppable. It could ignite the bulk of humanity. With just a few individuals, superfluous at that stage, barricaded behind the ego enclaves.
This is my vision of what might happen in what I call Zenith's world. And coming back to the here and now, because that's what we are about, of course. This vision inspires me to stop guarding my internet. Not just in preparation for a looming crisis, I probably will not be around by then, but primarily to enjoy the fullness of life right here, right now. To save you the experience of peace and love emerging from my heart, from our hearts, and pervading the world. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.